come up and interrupt you, Ben. That was really nice. But uh, we have business to do, so we keep going. Luke 9. Yes, you can clap for Ben. That is okay. He will hate it, but you can clap for him. Um, so Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We read that uh, over a year ago, and now here we are. Jesus has arrived at the moment that he has been trekking toward since Luke 9. He is a walk to Golgotha away from bearing the sins of his people, from receiving the wrath that his people deserve for their sinning. And we will see Jesus on what has become known as the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, as he walks toward the cross. And I think that there is something for us on the nature of the Christian life and discipleship as we follow Jesus' footsteps. So let's take a look at the text, Luke 23, starting in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Father, we need your divine help from heaven, Lord, to understand your word this morning. It is your spirit, God, who gives us that understanding. And so I pray, Lord, that, uh, that he would bring us the help that we need. I pray, Father, that uh, your word would be clear to us this morning. And I pray, God, that uh, your word would not only be good for the application to our lives and the transformation that comes from, uh, from learning from your Bible, Lord, but I pray that it would also translate to witness, God, that we would leave here uh, ready to tell the world about the one who, who walked to Calvary for them. So, Lord, stir up our hearts, Lord, um, by the, the words, God, that you have spoken. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 26 says, as they led him away. So let's just stop and let's talk about the state of Jesus' body as he is being led away here to uh, the cross. At this point, he has a task ahead of him that would have been difficult for somebody who was strong, somebody who was fresh, somebody who was healthy and rested. But that's not Jesus, not at this point. He has gone through a political trial with Pilate. At the end of that trial, he was beaten. And he was uh, beaten with a scourging. Mark 15, verse 15 says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourging was executed with a whip that was deviously constructed. It was engineered to produce as much human suffering as possible without actually killing somebody. The whip had leather tails with pieces of bone and metal woven into it. The historian Eusebius said that when the Romans used it on the Christian martyrs, 
The martyrs were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. So it's likely that the scourging has not just left Jesus bloodied, it is very possible that he has bone and cartilage exposed by the horror of the beating. And all of this fulfills what was written in Isaiah 52 verse 14, 700 years before Jesus even lived. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. After he is scourged, he is mocked by the Romans. We go to Mark again who fills in some gaps for us. Mark's account says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Once it is time for the final walk to the cross, custom would take over. He is the condemned. We know he's innocent, but in their eyes he is the condemned. So he would be placed in the center of four Roman soldiers, and then a cross beam would be laid on his shoulders, weighing about 100 pounds, and he would have to carry that beam half a mile to Golgotha to the place of execution, a hill outside the city because it was unlawful to crucify him inside of the city. Again, this task to carry this 100-pound cross beam would have been a challenge for most people even if they were feeling good, even if they were fresh, even if they were healthy. Jesus himself is a blue-collar man. He is a worker in the prime of his life, a man with strong hands, a man with calluses on his hands, a man who worked with wood. Jesus was uh, the, the sort of guy that, you know, in, in modern day times, you might see him down at Lowe's, you know what I mean? Uh, the, Jesus was not a guy who sat behind a desk. And so on a normal day, to pick up this 100-pound crossbeam and to carry it to his place of execution, if he had not been beaten, if he had not stood all these trials, well then, this is something Jesus probably would have been able to do without a problem. But that is not the state that he's in. It's not a normal day. He has not slept. He has been under insane spiritual and physical and emotional distress. He has withstood multiple trials. He has been beaten within an inch of his life. He is unable to accomplish this task. He cannot carry the crossbeam. So what do the soldiers do? Well, they did what they had the right to do by Roman law. They involved somebody from the crowd. And Luke tells us that they randomly pick Simon of Cyrene, right? He's just plucked out of the crowd. Simon was a common Jewish name, even just within the, the band of the 12 disciples. We've got two Simons. And Cyrene was modern-day Libya in northern Africa. The historian Josephus tells us there was a significant Jewish population there, so it's no surprise that Simon is from there. And Simon has been chosen to carry the crossbeam for Jesus all the way to the place of execution. There's no way he's happy about this. Not just because of the physical stress that it's going to put him under to carry this crossbeam, right? Nobody signs up for that, but because you don't want to be involved. 
You don't want to be involved. Your whole life you've heard about scenes like this. You've stayed away from scenes like this. You don't want to be involved in a scene like this. This is capital punishment. He knew what this was. He knew what Jesus was uh, about to endure, at least the physical side of it. He knew that this is a, a man who's been condemned as a criminal. He's going to be crucified. You don't want to be implicated in this. You want no involvement. So there's no way that he was happy about this, and yet the experience of doing it was so life-altering that we're pretty sure Simon became a Christian and that he became a brother in the Lord. We think this because of how Mark wrote about him in Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and then listen, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. If this is just some random stranger, plucked out at random, never to be heard from again, we would not know the names of his sons. We might know his name because he is being involuntarily involved in the most important moment in world history, but we wouldn't know his sons. And more than that, traditionally, we've understood Mark's gospel to be written by Peter, okay? Now, Mark did the actual writing, but it's Peter's account. Peter would have dictated it to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. So as you read Mark, we're pretty sure we're actually reading uh, Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus' life and, and everything that went on around Jesus' life. And traditionally, we've believed that Mark's gospel is, is written to Gentile believers, where? At the church in Rome. So it seems like as Mark is writing to the Roman church on behalf of Peter, he includes this note about Rufus and Alexander because Rufus and Alexander have become well known in the Roman church. In Romans 16.13, Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And so it certainly seems like Simon the Cyrene became a believer and his two sons became prominent members of the church at Rome. As far as Cyrene itself goes, the gospel took off there and the local church in that city played a big role in the early mission work of the church. Acts 11 verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. How involved was Simon in that work? Maybe we will find out in heaven. But the bottom line is that while the Romans thought, we'll just pick this random guy out of the crowd, doesn't seem like that was the case in the plan of God. Because according to God's sovereign grace, he had Simon picked out so that Simon would not just carry the cross of Christ, that he would meet his Lord and so would his household. It seems to be what happened if our historical puzzle piece work is correct. Let's keep going. Verse 27. There's a large crowd following Jesus, a great multitude of people. And there are these women with the multitude who are mourning and they are lamenting in verse 27. These are not followers of Christ. Instead, these are professional mourners. They would show up to scenes like this, and they would beat their chests, and they would weep, and they would wail. They were a part of Jewish culture. We saw them in Luke 8, when it said, And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. If you read that, you're like, what? 
Jesus is trying to be kind. Why is this family laughing at him? It's because that, that's not who we're dealing with here. We were dealing with the professional mourners. That's who was laughing at Jesus. Going, oh, come on. We've been to a thousand funerals. This is what we do. We know that she is dead. Of course, then he took her by the hand and said, child, arise, and she resurrected. They've probably shown up here because Jesus has gained prominence, and so this is a scene that they want to be at. But while they're professional, there's no reason to think they're not sympathetic. All right? You don't need to group these women in with those who were laughing at Jesus in Luke 8. And frankly, if you were there and Jesus said that, you might have laughed too. Right? Because it's not every day you see someone resurrect a child from the dead. These women here are probably sympathetic to Jesus. They probably feel bad for Jesus. They probably look at Jesus as uh, a nice man uh, and maybe a great teacher uh, who has been um, you know, brought into this kangaroo court and, and uh, the crowd's been whipped up to, into a frenzy and manipulated into wanting him dead and now he is going to be crucified. Just on the human level, they probably have some compassion toward him, but they're not his followers. They're not his disciples. Sympathy for Jesus is not devotion to Jesus. Feeling bad about how Jesus' life ended doesn't mean you're ready for your life to end and, and you're ready to lay down everything for him and to, to give your life to him, right? So sympathy is not devotion. They're sympathetic probably, but there's no reason for us to think they're his followers. These are professional mourners. They're weeping, they're wailing, they're beating on their chest, and he speaks to them. And he issues them a warning, a, a, an alarm, a merciful alarm regarding, uh, regarding what is to come. He says, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's a merciful warning from Jesus in the form of a brutal prophecy. It's a brutal prophecy. He is, he is incredibly merciful to warn them of the judgment that's coming. But it doesn't make the prophecy about the judgment any less brutal. He's saying, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because judgment's going to come down in this city. Who's going to be, it's going to be so terrible that women who used to call themselves cursed because they could not bear children are now going to call themselves blessed because they're going to look around at what's happening in the city and they're going to say, boy, am I glad I didn't bring kids into this. What are these days that Jesus is talking about? Well, he's speaking about 70 A.D. The judgment that's going to come down on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. for how they treated the Son of God. And we know from history that it came in the form of the Romans laying waste to the city. In the same way that he judged the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 by allowing the Assyrians to come in and carry the people off into captivity. In the same way he allowed the Babylonians to come as a tool of his judgment against the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. He allowed the Romans to come in in 70 A.D. as a tool of his judgment to lay waste to the people in Jerusalem and again this is a consequence for the way that the Son of God is being treated in this very text Jesus warned of this 
In his Olivet Discourse, in Luke 21 especially, he warned of this. He said to his disciples, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, i.e. the Romans, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When we were going through that passage, I shared about the atrocities that occurred and, and what Rome did to the Jewish people at that time in Jerusalem. I'm not going to go back over all of that, but the bottom line is, is they starved them out. They locked them in the city and they starved them out. The historian Josephus reports that 1.1 million Jewish people died. We think that number is probably a little high, but it just tells you how horrible this was. More than 100,000 were taken captive by Rome. And Jesus looks at the mourners and he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Because this is going to come down upon the city within this generation. And in those days, people will cry out for the mountains and the hills to fall on them and to cover them in hopes of avoiding the wrath of God. We first see language like that in Hosea as the prophet warns of what will happen when the Assyrians were going to come and take the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. The same is said of how people will respond to final judgment in Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And you see the same language there because the judgment against the northern kingdom in 722, the judgment against the southern kingdom in 586, the judgment against Jerusalem in 70 AD, they're all these little previews, little snapshots of what ultimately is going to come when Jesus returns. And Jesus ends his warning with some of the most haunting words I think you hear him utter in any of the Gospels when he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's the green wood. Right? If you know anything about wood, you know that green wood does not burn well. Green wood is not a natural object for fire. And Jesus is the green wood. He's not dead in sin. He's the life and the light of men. He doesn't deserve judgment. But if you look at the cross, and that's what happens to the green wood, which does not easily burn, what will it be like when God allows the Romans to get their hands on the dry wood of sinful Israel? That's what he's saying to them. He is an unnatural object of wrath who is willingly laying his life down in sacrificial death. But the nation of Israel, filled with sin and rejecting the Messiah, they are dry wood. They are a natural object of wrath. 
What will happen when God subjects them to his judgment? Well, we know. Because we stand on this side of history looking back at 70 AD and we can say Jesus was 100% absolutely right. In fact, history shows us that many, many Christians saved their lives because they took their Lord's advice and they got out of the city and they did not come back when they saw the events of 70 AD starting to unfold. They remembered their Lord's words. They got out. Thousands of Christian lives were saved. We would do well to take his warning in general because in the same way that Israel was dry wood, so is the world that you and I live in. And apart from Christ, so are we. Dry wood in danger of fiery final judgment. And so we should take the advice of Jesus and weep for our sin and repent while there is still time if we have not repented and put our faith in him. In terms of the text, we'll stop there for today because I want us to be able to look at the entirety of the crucifixion in one Sunday. So that's what we're going to do next week. We'll do verses 32 through uh, 56 next week, Lord willing. But before we're done, I do want us to see this important picture here in this passage. And we know it's an important picture because Matthew and Mark and Luke all record it. It is the picture of Simon walking under the weight of the cross of Christ in the shadow of a suffering Savior. Not merely a sympathetic mourner on the sidelines lamenting a harsh end to the life of a nice man and a great teacher. No, Simon is on the road of suffering with Jesus and he is literally participating in the suffering of Christ. And I think that for us this morning, this is an unmistakable picture of the Christian life, of Christian discipleship. It's a moving illustration of what Jesus taught in Luke 9.23. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So in Luke 9, he looks at his disciples and he tells them, I'm going to be rejected by religious Israel. I'm going to be killed. And then in the same breath, he says, take up your cross, your instrument of suffering, your instrument of death, and you follow me. He was letting the disciples know. They didn't fully understand it. They would come to understand it, but he was letting them know that his suffering would not just save their souls, it would give them a pattern for what a redeemed life looks like. Because in the same way that Jesus was fully submissive to the plan of his Father to save his people through the death of his Son, Disciples must renounce their plans and their purposes and daily take up the cross that the Father has laid out for them. Tom Schreiner says, when Jesus takes up his cross, he bears it to the place of execution. So too, disciples of Jesus are to follow Jesus to death, so to speak, every day. The Romans made the condemned carry their crossbeams to their place of death. And every day we must do the same. We carry the crossbeam of discipleship on our backs. 
But as we do it, we don't do it separated from Jesus. Instead, we're doing what Simon's doing in this passage. We are carrying the cross, but we're carrying our cross in the shadow of our suffering Savior. We carry our cross participating in the sufferings of Christ. In his landmark book, probably the best book in discipleship I think has ever been written, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the book's called The Cost of Discipleship, he says, suffering then is the true badge of discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. There are two main forms of suffering that I think are unique to the disciple of Christ. Not the only forms, I think two main forms. First suffering that any disciple experiences the suffering of renouncing the world, of, of, of renouncing our former way of life. It is the suffering of self-denial. It's war with the flesh. That war starts when you come to know Jesus. That war starts when you repent of your sin and you put your faith in Christ, but it carries on, it continues every day of your Christian life. Every day we wake up, we walk the Via Dolorosa with Jesus again, crucifying our sinful desires, crucifying our ego, our boasting, our pride, our obsession with ourselves and our agendas. Jonathan Edwards said the great Christian duty is self-denial. Which consists in two things. First, in denying worldly inclinations and its enjoyments. And second, in denying self-exaltation and renouncing one's self-significance by being empty of self. And this is what we do every day, right? Every, every day we wake up and we have these sinful desires that must be crucified, that must be taken to Golgotha, that must be crucified with Christ. The desires of the old man, the old way of life. But on top of that, we have these egos. We have these desires for self-glory. We have this pride in us that says, no, you're number one. Come on, listen to the culture. Self-esteem, you're the best. Just go get what you want. And this also must be crucified. So it's our sinful desires and it's our ego that says our sinful desires are most important. It all must die every day. It's a daily war. And that is a suffering in that daily war that we experience as believers in the fight with sin that unbelievers simply, they have no clue about because sin is their master. And when sin says jump, they say, well, how high do you want me to jump? I'll do it. But there's another form of Christian suffering, and that is the suffering of persecution. Again, we can say there are other ways that Christians suffer, but these are really unique to the church. As you wage war against sin in your flesh, you're also waging war against sin in the world by identifying with Christ, by proclaiming the good news of Christ, the gospel of Christ. And this could look like so many different things. You know what I mean? Like th th This comes about in so many different ways. I think that sometimes when we think of proclaiming the gospel out there in the world, we just think, well, I'm going to come up to somebody and I'm going to say, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Or I'm going to walk up to somebody and say, if you died today, why would God let you into his heaven, right? Whatever presentation you've come up with and that you have, have learned throughout the years. But here's the reality. 
You and I both know that if we come up to our lost friends and family, if you show up at the Thanksgiving meal, oh, excuse me, I have four spiritual laws I'd like to share with you all. They'd be like, what are you doing? Come on, Uncle Dave, get out of here. Why are you acting like this? You know what I mean? Like, that, that's not how normal people interact with one another. We don't walk around talking to each other like car salesmen. No offense to car salesmen. Okay? We need them. But it more often is going to look like praying before the Thanksgiving meal at your house, including a thanksgiving about the death and the resurrection of Jesus in that prayer in the hearing of your lost friends and family members. More often it's going to look like you just talking about what you're learning at church with your coworker over lunch or you sharing a Bible verse with a friend of yours that you know is having a really hard time. A thousand ways each and every day we do the work of the, the uh, fulfillment of the Great Commission, right? The church is, is going about evangelizing the lost with the spoken word of God in so many different ways. But as we seek to make that kingdom impact, the world will reject us. And rejection brings pain. It's not fun. But if that rejection has emotional and physical consequences, that ramps the suffering up to another level. Most of us in this room don't know a ton about the physical consequences that can come from believing in Christ. A lot of us haven't even suffered very many emotional consequences from believing in Jesus. But there are plenty who do, like Jalem, a Fulani believer in West Africa who gave her life to Christ in 2020. And when her family discovered her newfound faith, they harassed her, they beat her, and they disowned her. She moved in with an uncle, and a local pastor is helping her finish school. And she shared with frontline workers that though sometimes she struggles to get by, she hopes to attend Bible college after finishing school. You should pray for Jalem. Voice of the Martyrs says we can pray for her by asking God to help her to remain firm in her faith in the midst of the suffering and the rejection she is experiencing. Uh, we can pray that she can show the love of Christ to other Fulani people and to her family who has rejected her. The days of tribulation do not touch us with as much danger and threat as they do our brothers and sisters around the world. By the way, no need to feel guilty about that. And this great experiment we have here in America, we have this beautiful thing called religious freedom that a lot of people have died to bring us. So we don't need to feel ashamed of the fact that we're not suffering this persecution. And yet we're not exempt. I think if you want to get fired up for Jesus and go around and be intentionally on mission every day, you will find there's plenty of rejection available in the states. Satan will see to it. Again, there's other forms of suffering the Christian experiences, uh, you know, physical ailments, financial hardship, discipline from the Lord at times, but when we're talking about self-denial and we're talking about persecution, those are uniquely Christian sufferings. So this picture of Simon and Jesus, what it does as, as we consider the reality of discipleship, as we consider the pain that comes along with self-denial every day, the pain that comes along with being persecuted, we're sobered up to reality here by this picture of Simon and Jesus. This is not the smiley greeting card version of Christianity that exists to raise your self-esteem and help you overcome some bad habits. It's not that. This is not Boy Scout civic religion where you adopt the teachings of Jesus 
to, to mix in with your, your Bible Belt morality and your politics. Coming out with some Christian nationalism in the end. This is not that. This is not academic religion, devoid of miracles and supernatural, reducing Jesus to some sort of ethical guru. No, this is authentic blood and bone Christianity on display as we see Simon carry the weight of Jesus' cross with the suffering Messiah swaying in his sights, setting the pace and providing the example. That's the Christian life. It's a clear reminder to us that this will cost us something. In fact, it costs us everything. Christ gave it all. And now He says, I want your all. I want you to give me everything that you are. This is what it means to follow Him. And this comes on the heel of of another picture. Remember last week, we saw the Gospel in Barabbas the guilty going free, Jesus the innocent being condemned and going to the cross. So we saw the Gospel, and now, right after that, it's like, hey, you you want that? You want that Gospel exchange? Well, this is what it's going to look like to follow Him. Here's another image for you, right? Carrying the cross of Christ with Him suffering and swaying in your sights. We walk in His shadow, suffering with Him. This is what life will be like if we're going to be followers of this King. Paul understood this to be true. He wrote in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. If we are to know Him in His resurrection, we must share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he writes to the Corinthians and says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are partakers of His comfort, we will also have to partake in His suffering. And he charges Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I say, well, well, what for? What's all this suffering of self-denial and persecution about? What's the end goal? To become more like the Lord. To become more like Jesus. Because as we suffer with Him, we are taught to depend on Him. To cling to Him. To love what He loves. To hate what He hates. To want what He wants. The end that God wants to bring you to is an end where you look like Christ. That's everything God wants for your life this morning. He wants you to look like Jesus. Jesus is who Adam failed to be. Jesus is the perfect servant of God, surrendered to the will of the Father, and God wants you to be like Jesus. And He uses the heat of suffering to draw us closer to Him and accelerate our spiritual growth and to conform us to the image of His Son, which is why He says in Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what then? Are we to see this picture of Simon suffering, carrying the cross of Christ, and say, okay, it's a picture of discipleship, and I share in the sufferings of Christ as a disciple of Christ, so my job this week is to go out and find me some suffering so I can be more like Jesus. 
Of course not. You don't need to seek it out. If you are faithful to pursue Christ's likeness, it will find you. Or some might say, criticizing Christianity, well, hey, I guess the Christian life is just a sad, miserable string of events. We feign happiness along the way because apparently we're becoming more and more like Christ and heaven will be better, but in reality, this life is just miserable. That's the Christian life. Come to Jesus and be miserable. Well, no, that's not it either. The New Testament does not paint the Christian life as a miserable life. It's a suffering life. But it's not a miserable life. In fact, and I want to, I'm going to drive us home here with this. Bonhoeffer argues in the cost of discipleship that true suffering is not something the Christian can even experience. So here's what he says. He says to truly suffer is to be cut off from God. That's what true suffering is. That is what suffering in hell will be. People cut off from God forever. So to truly suffer is to be cut off from God. This is why I don't know how unbelievers deal with life. I don't. I have seen some of you in this room. You're walking through terminal illness as we speak. I've seen others in our church go through it. Fight other diseases that are not, are, are, are not terminal, but that are brutal every day. I don't know how somebody faces that without Jesus and his promises. Truly, I do not. But if that's the true definition of suffering, to be cut off from God, then we have to say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is correct. The Christian is never truly suffering. Because Christ has died and He has made a way for us to be made right with God, we're eternally in relationship with the Father through the Son. There's nothing that's going to change that. So is your suffering, are, are, are we to just dismiss it? No. You, you're, you're experiencing real pain, but that pain is endured in a relationship with the Father. In fact, the Father is using that pain to draw us in, to separate us from the world, to bring us closer to Him. So, whereas true suffering means to be cut off from God, we would say that Christian suffering means to commune with God. And that is what led Bonhoeffer to say, for God is a God who bears. The Son of God bore our flesh, He bore the cross, He bore our sins, thus making atonement for us. In the same way, his followers also are also called upon to bear. That is precisely what it means to be a Christian. Just as Christ maintained his communion with the Father by his endurance, so his followers are to maintain their communion with Christ by their endurance. In other words, God is using the suffering of being his disciple to draw you into intimacy with him. So, when the suffering comes, you don't need to run. Because the suffering doesn't mean you're being cut off from God. No, it means He's drawing you into commune. To endure is to commune with God because as you endure the suffering, He is accelerating your spiritual growth. He's establishing a greater closeness with your heart. And that's how God uses the suffering of discipleship to sanctify His children. It's not easy to suffer for doing the right thing. It's not easy business. I've heard people say that Receiving opposition lets you know you're in the right place. That's probably true. Guess what? Doesn't make it easier at all. The idea that opposition means I'm in the right place or I'm doing something right, that doesn't necessarily stop me from looking around and going, well, what if I got to bear their cross instead of having to bear mine? 
We do that, right? No, the thing that keeps us from looking around and wishing we had somebody else's plot is to look at Jesus. We need to keep our eyes up the road on the Via Della Rosa. We need to see him with his bone and cartilage exposed, crown of thorns on his head, beaten beyond recognition, and yet still placing one foot in front of the other, pressing on toward the cross. Pressing on to the cross because Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Christ. That is what keeps us from looking to the right or the left and trying to compare our plot to somebody else's plot and thinking, well, what if I had their life and why is God making me go through this? And I don't like that. We don't look to the right or the left. We don't look behind us. We look to Jesus who walks in front of us, suffering on the same road, leading the way. He gave us this faith and he's using the suffering of discipleship to perfect it. And more than that, he is the model for our lives. Because he did not run from the suffering of obedience, he endured it. And if we are to be like him, then we must endure in his strength as well. Sympathizing with his suffering from the sidelines won't do it. That's not the Christian life. We must share in it. Trusting him as he makes us more like Christ in the communion of trials, waiting on the reward he's promised to us, joyfully pressing on with our cross on our backs and our suffering Lord in our sights. The band is going to come back up right now in just a moment. After I pray, you guys can, well, no, come on up, come on up. You're already moving. Come on up. Full disclosure, we're trying to be better about not praying while people are moving around. You know how you know, churches do that? It's like, we're going to pray, and then when we say amen, magically, people have appeared on the stage. You know what I mean? Praying to our God is not the time to be shuffling people around. It's the time for us to be quiet and still before him. So we're trying to be better about that. Ten years of doing it the other way, it's really hard to break it. So. But let me close with these lyrics as the band is fully in place. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the picture of Jesus we get in this passage this morning, God. It's challenging because it's clear to us that if we're going to walk the road that he walked, it won't come without pain and suffering. 